Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM Podcast. My guest today is Dan Weller, who's a songwriter, producer, mixer, and guitarist out of the UK. He's known for not only his productions, but he is the guitar player of the groundbreaking, legendary band Sixth. And uh, he's also worked with several bands such as Hunger, Sea Girls, Holding Absence, Cody Frost, and uh, many, many more. I really, really enjoyed this episode. I love Dan's perspective. So I'll stop talking. Here goes. Dan Weller, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you for having me, my friend. It's a pleasure. And I'm glad that we're finally able to do this. I know that we've been uh, scheduling it and then unscheduling it and then rescheduling it and then unscheduling it and then rescheduling it like for six months now. There's been something that comes up every time we try to do this, like COVID or a good busy schedule or... It's always been something, so I'm glad that we're finally able to do this. Likewise, mate. The gods didn't want us to meet, but it, but it's finally happened. Fuck them. <laughs> That's what I say. So I I just not I don't want to kiss your ass or anything, but uh, I remember in 2006 when Colin Richardson and Matt Hyde, the English Matt Hyde, were mixing my band. I was in uh, in London for it, and. Matt was playing me this band and I forget if he was working with you or he just liked you or something, but he was playing me this stuff and I was like, holy shit, this band's fucking great. What is this? And it was you guys. It made a huge impression on me and I still remember it. Like, you know, people play me bands all the time. I forget them all the time, but I remember that day in 2006 being like, wow, okay, now this is some good stuff. And that rarely ever happens, so. Well, thank you, man. I mean that. Any Anyone who's listening, I guess, who's, who's formed a band or is in a band, you know, everybody has a, a different 
incentive for doing it, or multiple incentives, most likely. Mine was always for, for uh, and, I, and I think I can speak for the rest of the band, it was always for, for the songs to turn heads and for it to hopefully stand the test of time and even more... Uh, of, a, of an ambition was to kind of influence some people so the fact that you can remember when you first heard it that's that's success for me um yeah because like you say there's a lot of a lot of bands come and go don't they so you have to you have to try hard i can kind of relate to what you're saying it's on a different level completely because uh i don't think my band ever went to a legendary place or anything like that but the fact that people still you know we haven't done anything since 2010 and the fact that people still care it's kind of a it's kind of a mind blowing thing, right? It's great, man. I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the the exciting thing, and there's probably numerous cliches that have been spoken on this very podcast, but I I like the fact that when when we're all a whole generation that I'm in now, we're all dead and gone. That, that record will exist, especially now in the digital age. <laughs> find it hard to delete all the copies. So I like the fact that it's kind of like a, a sonic flagpole you get to leave behind, you know, whether it sucks or it's good, at least it's still there. Um, and yeah, you know, on the grand scheme of things, is it an important legacy music? You could argue no, you know, uh, you know, we, are we trying to get to Mars? No. But, you know, you it's better than nothing. And, and definitely I enjoyed it along the way as well. So I think if you can enjoy it and achieve something like that, that's a brilliant thing, you know? Um, and yeah, it's, it's really cool. I just want to pick your brain on these feelings. Cause, uh, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently is when you were doing it. I mean, obviously, like you said, there's multiple reasons for doing it, which is, and I'm sure there's art, there's wanting to being a band that does it for real, like all kinds of different motivations. It's not just one thing, which is why when people say that people are in bands for the wrong reasons or something, I'm like, that is such a simplistic way to look at it because you can both want the art and also want the success and also want to not have to work a regular job and also want all kinds of different things that come with it. But is it something that when it ended you imagined that maybe almost two decades later that anyone would give a shit or even remember. Part of me wants to say I didn't think anyone would care because I, I, I knew, you know, I, I was always probably the, the, and much to the annoyance of the other guys, I kind of, I was always looking ahead and thinking what's the future going to hold and can mm -hmm. a band like Sixth that's kind of quite an acquired taste, can it have a shelf life? Can I still be doing it in my mid-40s and not feel like a douche? I had all these thoughts, you know? Yeah, me too, yeah. And I had no idea whether people would still listen to it now. <laughs> I mean, tangent a bit, but, you know, the, the comment I get most of all, which I, I find kind of uh, comical semi-insulting but also quite sweet is people always say to me oh yeah I used to really love your band you know and it's that used to that always gets me and, and I always think <laughs> so you went off it but but you know then I think geez if I was a fan of a band like Sixth and I'd grown up and just carried on with my life and wasn't wasn't in the music scene would I go back to it in my middle age and, and think oh this really connects with me while I'm sort of you know wiping the kids asses or whatever I think a lot of our fans are the people that were there from the start and, and feel the nostalgia of it I have no idea if there's new fans coming along but I guess the simple answer to your question is I didn't expect so many people to 
to stay along for the ride. But equally, I think it's not just down to us. It's down to other bands that have openly been quite, um, you know, in a really nice way, complimentary about the influence we've had. And they've kind of um, carried the flame, if you like, made it bigger, monetized it. And we're kind of there at the start in the sort of dinosaur era of sort of tappy widdly nonsense music. But the fact we're still talking about now, the fact you can open up, you know, on the other side of the world and talk to me about my band. Yeah, that's, as I'm sure it's the same for you. It's it's pretty cool, right? Weird, yeah. It's And and, there's, and you can't bottle that feeling. You don't know how to, you don't want to do with that information. You can't go, yes, success, I've made it. I can sit down and relax. You, you, just, you just have to go, fuck, that's really cool isn't it and keep reminding that yourself that there's probably numerous bands who tried to do that and then bombed and no one ever heard and heard of them again so well, well yeah you don't know what to do with the feeling in a way because there isn't like it's different if the band went platinum or something and bought you a house and you have that <laughs> yeah. you're in the house that you know you know what i mean like at least for me it's purely a wow that's cool which is fine yeah, 100%. It led you to where you are. It's all part of the journey. It led me to being in the studio. And no one is really defined by one thing in their life. So it needs to just be one thing of many, doesn't it? And like, it's a good foundation to start a music career because you can relate to other musicians. You can say you've been there, done it to an extent. When people talk about gigging, you say, yeah, I know that feels too. Um, it kind of grounds you with with a, with a good knowledge base and you know ultimately like it should just be fun shouldn't it you should just look back and go well I don't remember most of my 20s uh, but I know I went to these countries and I know I played to this many people I don't remember the gig I don't remember the backstage I don't remember how I got there whether I played tight or I was fucking awful but I know it happened and that's cool and so I, I have to remind myself of that stuff a lot you know and it's not like we were cold played you know what I mean we made relatively fuck all money but, you know, it's a good shot in the arm occasionally. And, you know, when you still get messages most days from a sixth fan somewhere in the world, that, you know, I'd be a liar if I said that didn't, uh, you know, t top up my, my ever ebbing away ego and just give me a little bit of a shot in the arm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a rare thing. It's a very rare thing. And I, I do try to put it all in perspective because I have this uh, conqueror's mentality when it comes to things. Like, I want the things I do to be as big as possible. And like you said at the beginning, for multiple reasons, it's not just, you know, there's not one reason there is the making an impact, making a difference, but there's also, you know, financial ego, like all those, there's a mix of different things. But when it comes to something like music, I do put it in perspective a lot to, to try to like remind myself that doing anything that gets remembered like a decade later or something is crazy. Like we know a lot of people who are in successful bands who are doing it as their careers. And so I feel like if you are around those people, you work with those people uh, and that becomes your bubble, you kind of almost become somewhat immune to how rare that sort of thing is. Like it is incredibly, incredibly rare. It's just if that becomes most of your social circle for a long period of time, it's easy to forget. I think it's easy to just forget how special and how rare that sort of thing is. And so I remind myself that uh, that doing anything that anybody cared about in music at any point in time, if they still care about it, is super special and super cool. And uh, fuck yeah. Yeah, exactly that. You almost don't need to analyze the ins and outs of it too much you just because you know i can't speak for you but for most creatives that i know aligned with a 
creative sensibility comes uh, deeply analytical, must understand everything all the time, I don't understand what life is kind of stuff. And, and I've found as I've gotten older to try and make head nor tail of where I sit in the world and what um, what I get from music and what I feel having had a record deal or whatever i don't try to analyze it too much i just try to say like you did i just sort of say that's cool isn't it and i had and i made friends and i traveled and that's great so where am i now and i just look at where i am now and i and i see i can't kind of look back because if i start to go ah do you know what if we just stayed together and just waited for the internet to take hold when all these gent bands came out we'd have been massive you know we'd have been you know and we maybe we would have maybe monetized it but maybe we wouldn't and i kind of just think fuck it we didn't so there's no point worrying about it you know those kinds of thoughts are very dangerous because you can convince yourself of something that doesn't exist because you really you don't know Maybe, like, logically speaking, maybe Sixth would have become massive, but there's no way to know, so it doesn't matter. Literally no way, no. And it wasn't the right time to carry on, so we didn't. You know, but what I will say is, you know, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of, like, a, I don't know, a teenager listening to this, um, thinking, well, how can I relate to, you know, who's got a band who hasn't got anywhere yet? Um, thinking it's this sort of like transitional place in a, in the in the far distant future that seems like a mountain to get to. Actually, I, I, in my experience, anyway, our sole aim was to create something so unique that the only where the only place anybody could get it was where we were. So you either, if you like it, you got to come to us to get it. Mm-hmm. And yes, sure, it was pre the internet, it was pre MySpace, it was pre all of that stuff. But still, the the same rules applied. We didn't pander. We just did something that was purely for us. That we were like that fucking rules. That's disgusting. That riff's wicked. Let's do that again. We created our own little th- worlds that, luckily, people, in, you know, albeit in a relatively small pond, were into. Um, so I would say, you know, not in this kind of like, hey, hey, internet motivational time, but I would say for anyone thinking that it's actually a, quite, a, quite a challenge to get to that point, I don't think it is if you put the right pieces together and you work really hard for it. And I think because um, a lot of bands probably over the last 15 years that I've worked with, like going back to what you were talking about before, with different incentives. And like you say, yeah, some people just want to get on the cover of Kerrang! and that is their aim, and they then achieve it. And will anyone ever sing their melodies or play their riffs in a guitar shop in the future? Fuck no. But that wasn't what it was about for them. So you've got to decide on what your aims are and then pursue them. My, my aim was never to be commercially successful. It was to leave some kind of sonic flagpole where people have difficulty learning how to play our songs in 20 years time which is still a thing so i feel like i achieved what i wanted (laughs) i mean the irony is i can't fucking play them either so it's kind of i (laughs) fucked myself there were you very clear about those goals back then ruthlessly so i would say good it's important to know yourself um i feel like for me my goal has always been the same, but I wasn't aware that that was my actual goal. So like my goal has always been to make a huge impact and to improve, basically to improve music, but like in a big way, like improve an entire genre or you know, like have some sort of an impact that creates creates some sort of a movement or that facilitates the evolution of a genre which is super crazy but uh but that's what I've always wanted to do and to do it like I said in a big way and my mistake was to be channeling those feelings into a metal band like to actually doing the band like to try to have those types of aspirations for the type of music I was making and for that type of working environment and that just that format for 
making those changes, that is completely inappropriate. So I did have the musical goals and all those things, but my deeper purpose was what I'm doing now. And I was always pushing to take things in that type of direction, like make a bigger impact, do things bigger. But I was basically trying to fit a round peg into a square hole type of thing. It took me several years to realize that that's what I've always wanted to do, but uh, I was kind of barking up the wrong tree with how to go about doing it. But I do think that it's very, very important to do the work to try to figure out what your actual motivations are for anything, especially what you're trying to do in a creative career, because what you think it is that you want might not be what you actually want. And the big factor to throw into that is when you're younger, and I'm sure there are far smarter people at 18 than I was at 18, but I can, so I only speak of myself, but you're not, when you're starting a band in your late teens, like we were with Sixth, you have this sort of boundless stubbornness, like nothing's going to stop me because frankly, nothing has up until that point. If you've been lucky enough to yep. have a, have a decent childhood or not had to suffer. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to say that. So you have almost a, a blinkered arrogance that People older than you, now that I'm older, I realize there will have been many people doing it behind my back when I was going, oh, yeah, we're going to be this. We're going to, yeah, we're definitely going to do this. And people must have been like, oh, fucking shut up, dude. Once you've had a few years of life, you realize that's not going to happen for you. But I do think, although you are kind of delusional at that, that age, it's that delusional, fearless approach that gets you to where you need to get to. Now, it's it's a bit of an eggs in, all eggs in the basket approach because for many people it fails and then it comes crashing down and I've seen that too. And like I say, we weren't Coldplay, we weren't able to go and move to Malibu and just, you know, just uh, drink Cristal for a living, but we got to a big enough point to step to the next phase of life. But it was that kind of, you know, there's this alignment of your dreams when you're 18 and, and in parallel to that is, is your maturity and your life wisdom and all this stuff and the two at some point I don't know what age it was for you they intertwine and then it all becomes clear and you're like oh fuck I understand why I did that now and I understand that I shouldn't have done that but I did and that's the way it is so it's, it's, it's funny like if I could go back to the start of my career with the maturity and clarity of sort of understanding how things work based upon having made loads of mistakes. So I've kind of like trial and errored my way through life now. Yeah, I would have made so many different moves, but we cannot go back in time and that is not a thing and there's no point worrying about it. You know, it's, uh, and I, I, I've, I wish to God I could, but I just can't. Um, it was recent for me, by the way, that understanding was in the last few years. Why do you think that was? Well, I think part of it is because what I'm doing now didn't actually exist in the world. Like there what we do, the technology didn't even exist for it. Like it just didn't exist. It reminds me of when I went to Berkeley, I took a music business class, like one of the only classes that was not bullshit. And the first thing that the teacher said, and this teacher worked for major labels and had signed a bunch of artists. He was like legit. He wasn't just teaching because he sucked. Which is a thing. Which is a thing. This guy is actually one of the things that I modeled URM after was like having real people be the instructors, real people as in people who have done it for real. But uh, the first thing he said was most of you who go on to work in music for a career are going to work in industries that haven't been invented yet. So I think that that was part of it was that I knew I had to do something, but that something hadn't even been, hadn't even been invented yet. So it's like searching for something that doesn't 
even exists. But I can tell you that even two years into the band being signed, I was already thinking, well, this is not tenable. Like, imagine being 40 and doing this. Hell no. And then I remember touring with much bigger bands and sharing buses and paying attention to how they lived and thinking to myself, so best case scenario, very best case, everything goes right. Would we be even as big as this band that we're sharing the bus with? That would have to be like every single thing goes right and maybe we could be as big as this band. How cool is this? Not that cool. And it's not that cool. Like I don't like, I don't want this as a future. And so I was thinking at what point, at what age will this be super depressing? And I came to the conclusion that it would be sooner than later. So already two years in, I was already thinking there is a next step. I don't know what the next step is. And then when I got the, the, the gig at audio hammer, um, I had already been producing for like 10 years, but that was like when I started, you know, being in the room with like much better bands and much bigger bands. And I was also thinking with that, okay, so this could lead to full-timing production, you know, if I keep following this path, is that what I want? And by the way, if that's what people listening to this want, awesome. Uh, You have to know what you want in life. So I was thinking, is this what I want because I was like 31 when I when I went there. I was like, is this what I want when I'm 40 or 50? No, definitely not. Within a year of being there, I was already thinking there is something else. But it was driving me nuts because that something else didn't have been invented yet. So mm. it's inspiring, though, isn't it? It is because right now people ask me, well, if you ever sell URM or something, what are you going to do next? I don't fucking know, but. I do know that there is something, but I feel the same way. It's like, whatever that next step is, it might not even exist in the world yet, but I do know that there is a next step. And uh, knowing that there's that next step and that hunting for it is is the way you find it keeps me, keeps me going. Un- but that understanding of like, I'm always trying to do bigger things, like it's super important for me to make an impact it was always kind of beneath the surface. It didn't really become super clear until I was making that impact and I was working with people where I can have a huge idea and they don't get mad at me for it or they don't like think I'm nuts for it or they don't think of how unrealistic it is. I mean, obviously I have to sell my ideas to them and I have to I have to make it bulletproof because they're super smart and they're not going to they're not going to be cool with just following me down some stupid path. But if I have a outlandish idea that's going to take a lot of investment and is kind of unrealistic for most people, if I can sell it well, the people I work with are totally cool with seeing it through. Yeah, you've proven yourself through your aims coming to fruition. Uh, Actually, as well, you know, probably in any industry, I think when you have these big ideas in whatever it is you're doing, and then you can prove it and you can make them a thing. Not only does it prove to everyone else that, oh, this this person's the real deal, but actually the, the deep-rooted vulnerability that most of us have where we're like, fuck, I might fuck this up really badly, it cleanses that a bit. And if you do it a few times, you start to actually, for me personally, I, I, I have a sort of an equal uh, amount of confidence and self-loathing, and that kind of tips one way or the other from most days mm-hmm. to the next. And I find I that the, the closer I get to my 
my description of this is good enough, you know, whether it comes to producing a record. When I listen to a record I've done and I'm like, fuck, that sounds really good, actually. Did I do that? Mm-hmm. That moment where I'm like, I'm, I'm not I'm sure in six months I'll probably find loads of holes in it. But at that moment, if I'm actually happy and I can genuinely say, well, I worked my ass off for that. I got paid well for it. I didn't make any enemies. Everyone had a great time. There's probably going to be more bands coming of that ilk now. Wicked. More importantly, does it sound fucking great? Yeah. That, that sort of does something to me internally. It's not about sort of massaging my own ego. It's about, it's like an inner sense of pride. Like you knew how hard and you've worked to work out how to do this and you've done it. And you, you're the only one who remembers all the sleepless nights you've had stressing about it. So getting to that point where you feel like you can bring your, your kind of aims and your thoughts to life in a way that represents them clearly that's a really important turning point in your life. And once you've passed that or you get to a point where you start to be satisfied, sure, you're unsatisfied to a degree going forward, but it, it becomes incremental because you're operating at a better level than maybe you did 10 years ago or whatever. whatever. So um, I can relate to what you're saying. That there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense of needing to know what you want and then when you start to bring it to life, things just make sense more. I don't, I don't know why it is, but they do for me. I call it proof. Because uh, I think that just about everyone I know in music has imposter syndrome, regardless of their level of success. Like everyone I know, except for the sociopaths, have it. And um, <laughs> there and there are some of those. But they're always questioning whether or not they actually belong in the room with the people they're in the room with or like when people are going to figure out that they suck or like all kinds of stuff along those lines. And, um, I think that that's part of getting better actually is if you have the drive to get better, it's because you think that you're not good enough yet, at least for that ideal that you're going for. And so a little bit of imposter syndrome is a good thing. It's part of what gets you there, but it can't be so strong that it prevents you from moving forward, which I've seen in some people where uh, some URM students, for instance, their imposter syndrome is so over the top that they prevent themselves from even even trying. And since I've got imposter syndrome, what I do is I like to collect proof that I'm full of shit when it comes to that and that I should just keep going for things anyways. I think it's important to do that. Yeah, I, I often say to people, like, I have loads of little sort of uh, sound bites that I seem to have created to motivate artists when they're feeling like the pit of despair. And it may make some people cringe until they turn the, curl their toes. But, but you know, I, th- I try to think of things relatively. And I always think, I bet Elon Musk is pissed at himself that he's not on Mars yet feels like a failure some days oh I'm sure you know if you look at it relatively everybody feels like they've not quite reached the level that they should have done and then with music (laughs) you know we're not all making we're all liars if we say we are we're not just making music purely for ourselves the whole nature of music is that it's there and it's you can't stand next to it disclaimering that out of tune vocal that you wish you'd tuned or you can't stand next to it apologising for any of it it's out of the pen and then it's free for any stranger who you may or may not agree with, you might be politically unaligned or whatever the word would be. Once it's gone, they will hear it and they can make a judgment on it. And that in in itself, enormous anxiety because it's like like letting all these things you're really proud of out into the ether. And especially with the internet now, people can then go, hey, this is shit. (laughs) Who are you? Doesn't matter, but it's still shit. And that's a really hard thing to deal with and you've got to be pretty bulletproof. Not to mention, you know, when a band will come in to me, and I always make bands put a Spotify playlist together of references, you know, a lot of people do. If a record gets put on that 
has passed me by or it just blows me away and there's a little voice in me going, fuck, I don't know how they created that. How did they make that synth sound? I couldn't do that. Instead of saying, well, that's why I'm not that person and we all have our own strengths and I'm sure Bob Rock and Randy Starr couldn't have made that record either but I still hail them for the Black Album. The point is you can't be great at everything so I say, I say well I couldn't do that but I could do this and I kind of, I have to find little mechanisms to make me not go go, go to the toilet and sort of berate myself which, which you know used to happen on the regular life is too short. And it's a natural thing to do. Yeah it is and we're all the same and, and actually talking about that stuff and smiling about it and riding the wave of self-loathing and oh shit I wish I was better at this that's one of the best techniques for not feeling like it because you're like oh actually we're all fucking crazy it's fine and we're all going to be fine and we're all getting better together and then one day we'll all die and it doesn't matter anyway so fuck it you know and I, I try <laughs> that's the only way I can deal with th- those demons these days because otherwise it's like you spend most of your mornings and nights just fucking hating yourself for how much 100 hertz is in the snare drum on this record that no one gives a fuck about anyway <laughs> I do think that, um, you know, bringing up the, you know, the teenager that's listening to this or even, you know, someone in their 30s or whoever is listening to this who is early on in their career and is facing those sorts of feelings or even if they're well on into their career and facing those sorts of feelings, I think that uh, it's really, really important, especially if uh, you feel that sort of thing pretty intensely, like, a lot of creative people do is to try and find a way to manage it because those feelings, they don't have to be a detriment and they don't have to be a roadblock, but they can be. If you let them run wild, they can definitely get in the way and having some sort of a strategy for dealing with them. Like you said, you, you find a way to put it in perspective. Like I know some guitar players who are the best guitar players on earth, you know, in, in that category, which I know you do too, who are in their forties and they still take lessons and that's how they keep themselves. They always feel like they suck, but instead of sulking about it, like they'll still get lessons once or twice a week and they have their entire careers, except for when they're on tour or something. And they, they do things in the real world to combat that. So they don't just accept that they feel this way. They actually do something about it. That's a huge difference maker. And I think people need to figure that out for themselves, whatever that is that helps them get past those feelings. The sooner that they figure out how to manage them, the better. Because the one thing I have noticed is that they don't really go away, right? So it's not that you're going to eliminate them from your psyche. If you're wired that way, you're wired that way. And changing your wiring is borderline impossible. But the thing that you can change is how you deal with things. And uh, learning how to deal with that stuff is crucial. I don't necessarily practice what I preach, but what I've found, again, in my early 40s wisdom, especially when I'm on records and I'm playing catch up and you know I'm, I'm getting up at 6 30 a.m editing going to bed at midnight the days when i've had a good night's sleep the following day i always manage to, to get better results and I, I sound like my mother now 
but like it's a thing your mom was right yeah sleep is genuinely the biggest cause of self-loathing 100 percent. it's also the cause of pushing someone's buttons or reacting to a comment you wouldn't normally react to or feeling like the world's a bit of a twilight zone today and like the clouds are sort of gathering around your head that's often an illusion and i swear in my experience is based upon sleep or a culmination of sleepless nights for a few nights in a row it can make creative decisions seem a lot harder your ears don't work as well so you're doing things that seem really difficult everything gets more difficult put loads of difficult things together when you're trying to aim for a certain standard that's still got to be hit and you're running out of time loads of bad shit starts happening so i do think fundamentally getting sleep when you're on a creative project is key and you know what this is like a just a little tip that i found has really helped me and if any hopefully it may help some people who suffer from the same levels of self-loathing that most of us creatives do i've got a document in my phone in capital letters that says things I don't know that I wish I did know, right? And I just add to it all the time. So if someone talks about the American Civil War or, you know, this Spanish Armada shit, I don't know about that and I feel dumb and I want to know about that. I just write it on the list. And most of the time it's audio-related shit, whatever it may be. But not necessarily. Understanding what that Arturia synth does in that pack that I've got 20 Arturia synths and I just go straight for a preset every time. Why don't I actually work out how that arpeggiator works after all these years? I write it on a list and then without any self-induced pressure or without any clock ticking, if I'm having a chill, I just go to that list and I just tick one of them off and I feel a sense of... The shit I'm not good at is getting smaller. That's good. It feels like progress for me. And actually, it's a very simple mechanism, but it really works. Like, it really does. Because you get a, a sense of pride that you've actually tackled your what you perceive to be stupidity head on. And I, I would recommend everybody did it because it, it can't fail you. It helps. That's my, my tip of the day. It's interesting that the uh, I feel like if you're talking about, and I am not a doctor, or a medical professional, but I have a lot of experience with this. When dealing with depression, depression, you know, needs to be attacked from multiple angles. It's usually a mixture of therapy, medication, lifestyle. One of those alone isn't going to solve it. But in my experience, the one key thing that kind of will make everything else work synergistically as opposed to making none of it work is the feeling of momentum and progress. And so things like what you just said, whether it's just some fact, you want to learn more about the American Civil War or something that's got nothing to do with your career, it doesn't matter. That feeling that you get when you're making progress on something that you previously viewed as a deficiency, big or small, just that feeling of progress, in my experience, is the thing that is the biggest difference maker because it starts there and then kind of starts to infest other areas of your life. And the opposite is true, too. Like if you're stagnating, that starts to infest other areas of your life. So I, I actually think that that tip is, uh, is very uh, powerful, actually. Well, uh, to take it further, it's broken down into numerous things, whether it be nature whether it be electronics whether it be music theory and these are things that bother me i know that they annoy me that i don't know certain things but the, the, in, in the most simple terms i could possibly put it in it's a way of tricking your brain because if there's something going on for example my life if, uh, i'm sure many of people listening to this my life is in Pro Tools. It has been since the year 2000. I see in Pro Tools, I do shortcut commands in my head in the middle of a conversation to sort of tr- Apple Z someone's comment, you know. When I, I can't get out of that world and I'm in that world, but even within that world, there's certain challenges that I find, like just creative challenges that I think, shit, 
I'm not going to be able to do this and it's going to take me ages to work out. But then if I align that with another thing that's unrelated to music that I also consider to be an unattainable target, a bit of knowledge that I'm never going to grasp in a short space of time, if I then go away and I attain it very quickly, it conditions me. I'm like, oh shit, okay, so it's quite easy actually. So I'll go and do that in this thing now. And, it, and it, I find it's like a, it's a way of tricking my brain into telling me that I'm actually smarter than I am because, <laughs> you know, we're all a bit smarter than we think we are, you know. Um, whether you can retain the knowledge, that's another thing. That's a problem I have, but that's years of headbanging and not sleeping long enough probably, but it's, it's proving to self you can do it. That's less important in my opinion than the momentum feeling and the feeling of progress. I agree. And you're taking the bull by the horns and when you're in control of your destiny, whatever, however significant or insignificant you may feel it is, you're, you're still in control and that's important. Yeah. So I think that that's a good time to segue into talking about production some and taking control of sessions. So you were saying that, um, you know, when a band comes in, you have them make a Spotify playlist, for instance, so that you can kind of get inside their heads some. And one thing that I've noticed about production is that when a session, this is kind of tied to what we've been talking about, when a session kind of starts, let's just say when something goes wrong in a session or like you're not on the same page as one of the musicians or... You try for something and it doesn't work out the way you thought it would. Just like any any kind of thing. Or there's a ton of band drama that you're kind of dealing with. Anything that could cause you to lose control of the session as the producer who should be in control of the session. What are some of the steps that you've taken to regain that control? Or what are the kinds of things that you do in advance to kind of preempt those types of situations from even happening in the first place. This is an area that's most important to me, actually, and, and for me is kind of the basis of why I like to call myself a producer proudly, you know, because I think I've always considered a producer as not just a creative role. It's, it's, a, it's an unqualified therapist, it's a friend, but ultimately it's a project manager. It's someone who's going to take the reins. You know, I've, I've done so many records where the band's management are awful and have fucked things up and have booked the wrong days in the studio, whatever. And it, and it started to occur to me that I am a control freak, but I'm also, I know where the line is, but I like to do shit properly. So I thought that's a, that's, that's something that's missing from people that I'd worked with, from people that I knew. I felt like what a band's first impression of me should be. I want them to know they can call me about anything. They can completely trust me and know that I'm going to work harder than anyone for their band. And I don't want them to even have to question that. Mm -hmm. I want them to just see it in me, like, fuck, this guy's the real deal. He really cares. So for me, and it's not some calculated, like, uh, you know, trick I've created to make bands go, wow, this guy is really trustworthy. It's it's who I am. I want, uh, and having been in a band and, and wanted that, I know what it feels like to feel like your whole career is in someone else's hands, and they better give a fuck, because if they don't, my future could be screwed, and and it, and it sounds melodramatic, but that is what it's like when you're in a band. No, 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 that's not melodramatic, that's accurate. That's literally what it is, because, you know, as you know, and, and anyone who's not been in a band doesn't get it. When you're in a band, you're all in. 90% of your conversations are about being in a band. Everything relates to being in a band. So when some guy comes along and says, this is what I charge to produce your album, I'll probably earn more from this than you will over the next few months. That's the fact of the matter in this day and age. I already feel like shit. I better really, really bring my A game. So for me, proving my trustworthiness and proving that 
they can rely on me is key to everything. And if that is proven early on through not forcing the issue, through honest friendship, you know, everything else falls into place better than because I'm never fighting against the tide. People are willing to take my advice and go, okay. And I find that if I don't establish that connection early on with a band, well, I don't know what that feels like because I always do because I want bands to enjoy every minute of the session. I, I want them to feel like, and I always say it, I want it to feel like a holiday camp. I want it to be like, okay, so we're all away with our mates making a record in a forest or in the countryside. This fucking rules. Sure, there's going to be moments of jitteriness, arguments, fear, all of the above, because ultimately every band and every artist ever is scared shitless of failing, not just failing commercially, but failing themselves and not hitting the target they know they're capable of. So you, you do have ups and downs, as you know, in the studio. You do have people all aligning at different times. Oh, this guy's woken up, feels got a smile on his face, but this guy looks like death. What's going on here? But you read those moments and you understand when someone's going too far, when someone's being pushed beyond the point that they're going to be able to do it. And you just you have to be the one to say, okay, guys, let's, let's go to the pub. We don't need to fight this. Everything in the studio in t when it comes to controlling a session is about reading the room and about knowing when to put your foot on the gas or when to go, it's okay. We're, we're well on schedule. And you know what? Why don't we knock off early tonight and let's start a bit earlier tomorrow. I'll get the Starbucks on the way in. Everybody's happy. Try and find a way to create positivity in every moment. And I find sometimes I'm feeling like shit and I have to fake it. But most of the time, if there's always someone in the room bringing some positive energy and bringing some, you guys are making the best record, believe it. You can drag most people through any shit they're going through. And, and you can, and as long as you talk, you walk the walk and actually deliver when you say you're going to, which is obviously the most important thing, then I'm... Um, you know, when it comes to the next clients that come your way, if a band has spoken well of you and said you can totally trust him to deliver what he says he's going to deliver, that's good enough for, the, for the, that band's touring buddies, you know? Yep. It's exponential. Equally, and I won't name names, but there's a few producers that I get regular negative stories about. That's exponential too. That travels like wildfire because bands love a good fucking moan, don't they? Let's be honest. Um, I've been in one and I <laughs> did too. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sure my reputation isn't completely squeaky clean. There'll be someone who's like, yeah, he's a bit of a prick sometimes. Nobody's is. We can't be just these righteous, perfect humans. We're going to clash with some. No, it's more about a ratio. Exactly, yeah. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lama God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics. 
as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. So there's two things about having your future in somebody else's hands. This is something that caused me lots of problems when I was younger because it's something that I understood from when I was a teenager. And so, you know, when you're in high school or younger, finding people who are serious is very hard, but I was always serious. And so I always viewed the people I work with as holding my future in their hands. And so it was... Uh, I would move on from musicians or people I worked with and uh, I was accused of using them or being cold or whatever, but they didn't see it the way I saw it. The way I saw it was actually this person is being an asshole because they're fucking up my future or they're fucking up the future of me and the other people in the band. Like it's not fair to the rest of us. I work my ass off for this. Like I'm devoting my entire life to this. And this person isn't. Why do I owe this person a spot in a band with me? I don't. And uh, I've carried that forward. And then in production, I thought about that too, because I remember being in a band and working with producers who didn't give a shit and then having those feelings like, wow, this this person controls my future right now. Like, I got to get away from them. It can bring the worst out in you as well. Everything you've just said, I relate to, yeah. It made me more brutal, but then, you know, like, when it helped me understand that when the tables are turned, I'm holding their futures in my hand. And even when it comes to something as like, I don't want to say low impact, but it's, it's not the same as making a record, but like working with someone on Nail the Mix or whatever, I know that that's not going to make or break their future, but um, it could either help or hurt. And uh, I want to, I take that very, very seriously. I feel like every interaction you have with somebody on a professional level you can either help or hurt their trajectory. And so I take that seriously. And I think that bands may not always think about that consciously. They may not be thinking, you know, 10 years out or something like that, but they feel it and they do think about it on some level. And if they don't have that trust for you, they don't have the trust that you give a shit. So it's really, really tough to get their trust and to make it through the tougher times. That's that's when it really matters is if they don't think that you really care about their future, but you're getting great tones and everything's working great, but like they don't think you really care, but everything's awesome. They'll overlook that to a degree. But the moment that there's a disagreement or a bad day or some band drama or some shit goes wrong, which is going to happen, that's going to happen. That's when that really starts to affect everything. 
And I, I think that producers at all levels need to think about this, but especially if you're starting out, when you're starting out, one of the biggest problems is you don't have the trust of bands. You just don't because you don't have, like we were talking about proof earlier, you don't have any proof behind you. Like there's no reason for them to really trust you. More often than not, early on in your career, if a band is coming to you, they're coming to you out of proximity or convenience or price. Like what? it's one of those things. It's like you're what's available and you're good enough. You're not their top choice. You're not even close to their top choice, but you're what they have to settle for at that moment in time. And that's why you hear a lot of uh, early stage producers having a hard time getting their ideas accepted or bands not listening to them or bands like arguing with them about too much stuff. It's not that the band are difficult, it's that they don't trust you yet. So you need to take steps to earn that trust. And it can't be, is like you said, it can't be some trick. It has to be genuine. And one of the things that you can do to make it genuine is to actually give a shit about their future and realize that how well this goes, depending on where the band is at, but how well this goes could mean the difference between them existing in a year or not existing in a year. Or if they're a professional band, this could mean the difference between them being able to pay their crew and pay themselves or not pay their crew or pay themselves for the next two years or any permutation of that. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're the facts. The guilt I feel as a producer is that I can finish a band's record and I'll, and I'll always make sure the band are happy and I'm happy. But then if that record doesn't connect or the band don't get to the level they want to get to, I still carry on. I get to do another record. I'm just, you know, I come away unscathed, unless it sounded like shit, but I like to think there aren't many of them. <laughs> but the point is, is that we're protected. For a band, it's like, no, this is like, uh, this means even more to, to the band in question. It's not about your production or the mix or anything. It's about... It's about that, yeah. It's about their future because you're dictating the trajectory of their their future. And sure, as, as long as you've worked super hard and you know you've given your all, then that's all you can do, you know. And um, and it doesn't mean no one's got a divine right to succeed, um, of course. But I wouldn't be. I mean, this isn't some kind of I'm such a nice guy, dude. It, it's not that. It's just I know myself. If I even scrimped on something because I just couldn't be fucked because I was desperate to get home and watch Netflix and I could have just edited that last bit of guitar but fuck it no one's going to tell I wouldn't be able to live with myself because you can't you just can't corner that shit you've got to do it thoroughly do it properly look at everyone say I work my ass off for you you know I mean and I'm sure most producers listening to this will agree there's been records where I've been paid a good amount of money there's been records where I've paid been paid fuck all does it impact how hard I work no of course it doesn't because all of that stuff. There's no. There's no parallel between financial gain and 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 knowing you've done the job. There is none at all. There certainly isn't for most of us. I would like to think it's an irrelevance. Sure, when you've worked your ass off and you do get paid a good paycheck or whatever, at least it makes you. It's the people around you, whether it be your partner or your family or whatever. When you've been away for ages, you can say, "Well, look, there's something to show for it that you care about. We can at least do something nice or whatever." But for me, it has no impact at all. I'm just like God. Tell me the vocals sound good. Tell me they do. You know that, that's all I care about, and um, and I like to think artists can tell that I'm one of them in that moment. And you know, segueing back to the old um, wacky metal band, having been there in a band and having had a career, it definitely helps me to feel like one of the pack kind of thing, and not just sort of the nerdy guy with glasses twiddling knobs in the corner. You know, I'm kind of I feel like I get I get it from from their angle. So that that probably certainly helps me. Do you think that they relate to you differently because they know that you have that background? 
It depends who, who the band are. You know, I'm working with Barry Tomorrow at the moment, who um amazing metal band over here. And yeah, a couple of the guys in the band grew up being into sixth. So, I mean, obviously we're just mates now. But when I have a guitar idea, the guitarist will listen because he, he knows I understand riffs. Whereas if I work with an indie band, you're like, what, sixth? Ugh, ugh, God, no. Metal, ugh. They don't give a fuck about the band. And I, they, they, it doesn't equip me in any way to have any... In fact... It hinders me because if you if you're trying to if you're trying to tell someone how playing into that 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 tweed with a Fender Jaguar should sound it should sound more curie if they then reference you as the guy from the atonal metal band it, it stands you in bad stead not good stead so, so sometimes it's a real shackle that I wish I could get rid of because there'll be artists that I've worked with in the pop worlds where the management will go oh god yeah I remember I remember sixth really heavy noisy stuff eh? he's probably not the right guy to work with you know so it's, sometimes it can be really unhelpful and uh, most of the time it's good though yeah I, I can imagine that it just it just depends on who you're working with. Speaking of someone you're working with or worked with, right now it is March 2022, and we've got Taylor Larson with Holding Absence on Nail the Mix right now. And I know that that's something that you produced, right? Indeed, yeah. I already knew that. I don't know why I asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, t- Taylor was calling me saying, hey, I've been asked to do this. Which song should we do? So we, t- Taylor and I have a kind of a iMessage voice memo uh, relationship that's just extensive where we, uh, yeah, we, we got through the whole album on that. He loves the voice messages. <laughs> he does. And they're always at a stupid time of night. I'm like, hang on a second, let me just do the maths here. Okay, it's 5 a.m. What the fuck are you mixing this song for? But, you know, I, all I care about are results and Taylor's got the ears, so it's, suits me fine yeah i mean yeah I, I i produced that record and i co-wrote some of it that that song in particular i co-wrote afterlife yes afterlife and i've picked uh, i've worked with the band on basically all of their singles i've co-written and produced um they've got a i mean they're one of my favorite bands one of my favorite bands to work with as well it's what you know sometimes when you it's people who use pro tools will understand there's a moment where you there's someone stood there singing into a mic and then suddenly you hear it back through pro tools and you've you've added a bit of extra compression and maybe sent it to some delay and you listen to it and you're like holy fuck that sounds like a a, a record you know and there's that yep. moment sometimes the conversion doesn't happen it takes quite a bit of work shit better double track that okay we're gonna wait we'll have to wait for the bass to come down on this one before it starts to sound like an album holding absence of one of those bands where you put like one or two elements in and it's like, oh fuck, this sounds really special. You know, and I get a funny feeling from it. And there's not many bands who can say that. Every every beat and every note in that band is thought out with kind of emotion and, and it, it has to feel something. And that's a real pleasure to work with because we're all, we all feel, we all get that shiver, you know, and there's certain chord, we're like, oh my God, that felt amazing, that chord, you know, that some people don't understand. That band have that in droves and I have that and I don't know, making music with them is just pure joy for me. I, I shouldn't be getting paid for it. It's a, it's a crime. Or awesome. So when you work with a mixer like, uh, like Taylor, does it change how you approach the production or like at what point in the process do you start communicating with the mixer? Well, I, yeah, I mean, it really depends on who, you know, I've, I've used so many different mixers over the years. Um, and again, a, a relationship with them is really important to understand what they're like. So I suspect on that album, we had a phone call or something about it. References are really important what the band's into. And I also write a fairly anal monologue when I send Pro Tools sessions to a mixer, which is not, this is how I want you to do your job. It's more... This is how you're doing your job. 
No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like there'll be certain things that I put in a session that it's it's to the mixer's discretion if they want to turn it up. I often do lots of Valhalla shimmer kind of three dimensional stuff, mm-hmm. and I'll just do it across the whole song loads. Um, and I often say if you if you're in need of some three dimensional moments where it's feeling a bit empty, just automate that up and it'll do the job. It's all perfectly in tune. So I'll often say stuff like that and give them a grounding, and I'll try to just describe how I want the records to hear. To, to, to sound, I'll describe it in words. You know, I want it to, I want the vocals to feel very upfront, but I want the the delays to be kind of quarter notes, half notes. I don't want it to be slappy delays, or I don't want the vocal to be too verby. I'll try and give them some kind of push in the direction that I know the band are going to be happy with. It's all based upon what the band want. And then because Taylor and I had never worked together before, it was really then just in the lap of the gods. You don't know what you're going to get back, and I knew. I knew it would be of a high standard. And the first mixes I got back were, were of a high standard, but they weren't quite where I wanted it. But Taylor, f- talk about diligent and never throwing his toys out of the pram. He was like, okay, cool, I understand. Let me go back to this. And we just hashed it out in a kind of really obsessive two people who just love the record, who just want to make it great. He wasn't getting paid loads for it, you know, neither of us were. He told me that there was a lot of back and forth. So that's what I'm curious about how that went. Yeah, I mean... The the amount of layers on that record are excessive, like to the point where I should have stemmed some of them out a bit more. But you know, the the band's kind of mantra, if you like, is that they hear their band as how many layers can we add until Pro Tools kind of stops it, mm-hmm. you know. And sure, as a producer, it's your job to go listen. That twenty fifth layer of shimmer Ebo <laughs> is doing nothing now, you know. But but equally, you want to embrace the chaos and say, hey, chuck some more shit down. It sounds great. So yeah, I think. The reason that that record went back and forth was, A, because there was a lot of tracks and it's very down to discretion as to which one needs to take the lead. But also I wanted the drums to sound a certain way. I wanted it to have something magical that I knew Taylor could get and he got it. And when we got Beyond Belief mix, which was the first mix, I was like, that that sounds insane. That's how it should sound. Loads and loads and loads and loads of low end, but not scooped. And that's really hard to do because then you've got to have loads of sort of 400 to 1K and then you've got the, a vocal getting clouded. And then before you know it, you're like, oh, fuck, so there's a 100 channels of epic shit. Where am I going to put that? So the poor guy must have just wanted to jump off a cliff, but he nailed it. That's something he's great at, though. He is great at mixes that have millions of different layers on them. You know, like the other track we've got going on right now is a Jason Richardson track, which there's so much shit going on in that track and it all works, but there is so much going on. Um, I think one of the things that Taylor is phenomenal at is figuring out how to take productions that are over the top in the amount of layers and somehow you can hear what's in there but it doesn't get in the way of the the main idea. Mm. Yeah, I agree. He's really good at that. I think he, you know, with multi-layered stuff, there's a decision that gets made by all mixes, me included, I think, and, and anyone who's good at mixing, I guess. You need to decide what's going to be perceived as fairly dry, fairly close to your ears. And then mm-hmm. you can get away with making loads of that shit wet and crazy. If you have too much verb on the snare and then suddenly you're sending the vocals to a bit of verb and then you, it just becomes a washy mess. So it, it's like a, 
making those decisions, what's going to feel super upfront and what's not. And then you can, you've got so much more depth to play with. And I do think they're creative decisions that need making early on. And I think with someone like Taylor, he's just naturally good at that anyway. So I think he just, he'll just lean in that direction, um, which is obviously why I wanted him to do it. And, you know, I'm still, that record stands up against anything. I think his mix is incredible on it. And, and incidentally, he mastered it too. And we shot it out with with a friend of mine at Sterling, and I and I and I and I warned him. I was like, Taylor is very very adamant he's mastering this record. You better be fucking great. And I brought Taylor in on the email thread. I was like, here he is, Taylor. This is Ryan. He masters all my records. He's fucking brilliant. And we ended up just saying, hey, Taylor's just ticking the box. It just does what we want it to do, and we were really happy. So um, yeah, I, I rate Taylor highly, and. Um, There'll be many more records, I'm sure, that we'll do together. When you know that somebody else is going to mix it, does it change the way you approach your production choices or your input on the arrangements? 100%, yeah. Yeah. I remember when Chris Lord Algae mixed a single for me, I was so scared of it sounding like shit. God, that's a little terrifying. Yeah, so I was like, this better sound amazing. You mean on your end, not his end. Yeah, I was. I wanted him to not... I didn't want to get a phone call. I was a much younger yeah. then. I didn't want to get a phone call going, hey, bro, yep. this fucking sucks, man. So I was like, yep. shit, I better tune that snare drum within an inch of its life, you know. But um, I want the mixer to have a great time. And I, and I pride myself on mixers mostly saying, hey, this is all sounding great, thank you. I mean, let's be honest... They're not going to tell me it sounds like shit, are they? But most of the time I believe them. <laughs> oh, they might. I think TLA actually told me that he's called some producers. Well, if it makes your job, like, really difficult, there's a point where the producer is you have to. fucking you, and it's like, this is not fair. You're making work for me that I'm not getting paid for. Yeah, I mean, I just, because I mix a lot of records too, I just, I know what I want a session to look like, and I make sure the mixer has it like that. I make sure it's grouped perfectly, color-coded perfectly. I'll make TCI files with the drum kit. I'll extract MIDI really anally with the Massey, Massey, whatever you call it, DRT, I think it is. DRT. I'll provide all the MIDI, because I don't trust anyone's assistant to do it better than me, so I just provide it all, and I'm like, there you go, you can't fuck it up. It's, it's all there on a plate, and I make a nice Dropbox session with a README. Um, normally, you know, fun, funnily enough, um, Jay Ruston mixed something for me recently, and it was through listening to your podcast. He's fucking phenomenal. Yeah, and I listening to what he said and how he works, this is a kind of a full circle moment as we're talking, it shaped the way I tuned the kit because I heard your podcast with him. And I was like, okay, he likes some decay on a snare drum. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw that moon gel in the bin. I'm going to let that sing. I'm not going to sun anger it, but I'm going to let it ring a bit. Um, and so that definitely shaped my creative choices there because I knew he likes to use a real kit. He's going to want a parallel compress. He wants as much kind of stuff as possible. So yeah, I tuned that kit completely differently how I to how I would normally tune a kit. It depends on the style of the music as well. You know, some Joseph McQueen's mixing Barry Tomorrow at the moment for me. He's also great. He's brilliant, great guy. And, These dudes are all great. Yeah, they're brilliant. And, uh, you know, Joseph and I get on really well via Instagram. We're chatting all the time. It's a really nice relationship where we can talk openly about how we want it to sound. I know he whether I, you know, I don't know if you can see the... Uh, the diesel uh, VH4, and it doesn't matter how, how great a tone I deliver, some mixers are going to take that DI and they're going to reamp it because that's their style and that's what suits them. And So I always make sure I'm really anal with the DI so that if someone wants to make that as a creative choice, it's not about whether I'm sad about my guitar tone getting thrown in the bin, it's about what, what's going to help them to give the, the best results. So I just try and provide choices for mixers so that 
you know, I would I would hate it if they were like, did you uh, did you get a you know stereo room mic right at the back of the room? No, I didn't. You know, I prefer them to just have it all. So, I guess I'm always in the very short, non-rambling answer to your question is I'm always considering making the mixer's job as easy as possible i think it makes sense and you know with the reamping thing there's also many mixers that will refuse to reamp so it's it's important to know who you're working with or to just preempt be ready yeah some people depending on which generation they're often from i think that's correct if it ain't got tubes in it you know that those people are out there and that's fine and i respect that too you know for example i just did the new uh, i did some new holding absence recently taylor is in fact mixing as we speak, I think. And we did it at the Marshall Marshall Amplification Studios. They've created a state-of-the-art studio at their factory in Milton Keynes, which is obviously a legendary place. It's where all the Marshalls are built. And this is like five million pound studio with a load of Marshall amps. And, I, and I've got the diesel VH4 in my boot and I'm thinking, can I be that guy to wheel my diesel in? Um, am I, am I going to use you know, a, a torpedo or a Sur and, and, and use some IRs? Uh, I can't. I just can't be that guy. So you know, for that particular session, I was just like, right, we've got every Marshall ever made at our fingertips. We better make the amp sound good. <laughs> so if Taylor ends up reamping them, then I'm clearly fucking shit at my job because I, I literally had it all there. Or he wanted something else. Maybe so. Yeah, I should put a note on the on the readme for him about that. Well, I really do think, just from my experience, like you said, there are some mixers that just they don't give a shit what you send them. They're gonna reamp. Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, going back to CLA, I mean, I don't know CLA, but I know how he works. And yeah, some people have a, that goes down that channel through that EQ and that is it. Whether you've given me the best sound of all time, I don't care. This is how I do it. And who am I to argue with CLA's results? So it kind of, it's very much a, it's not the producer's job to tell a mixer how to mix. The mixer sh- is mixing because they're the mixer and however they want to do it is their fucking thing it's down it's, it's down to me to sign it off and check the band to super happy that's kind of it how we get there is is you know it's on them to an extent and sometimes you need to weigh in quite heavily and sometimes there's a really awkward chat where you you call the mixer and you say look this isn't working and you need to really make it work because this band are quite difficult and they're not going to have patience so I, I'm leveling with you I try and sort of protect the mixer with honesty and then try mm-hmm. and help them get it over the line where, where, to a point where I know that the, the band will be happy but that's always a difficult balance because then you're like here's this patronising Englishman telling me how to do my job <laughs> fuck off you know so you're always trying to strike a balance for keeping the client happy not offending or patronising this mixer who's basically got Grammys or whatever. But it's, you know, ultimately most people, when they put their egos aside, you know. This wasn't me. Someone I used to work with on some record, I'm not going to say which one, somebody else was tracking the drums. That's right. Okay, so the person I'm talking about was mixing the record, and there was somebody else tracking the drums in a different location with a drummer, obviously tracking the drums with the drummer. And um, the mixer like wanted certain things like spaced pair overheads and certain things. Now this engineer who tracked the drums has done like Slayer and all kinds of stuff. I'm not going to say who it was, but has done all kinds of big shit and has been in the game for a long time. And uh, this mixer wanted to get on the same page about how the drums were being produced. And the engineer flipped the fuck out this mixer has a temper problem too perfect storm oh god they got into a 
one of the most brutal fights I've ever heard about the stupidest shit. The th problem is that the mixer was like calling him to tell him how to mic the drums, which is not what you do. I think that if he wanted to get on the same page, he should have asked him how he intends to mic the drums or like if there's, you know, or just like ask him for a few things like, uh, could you also put a trigger on the snare or something like whatever. But he was basically from the get go telling him how to do his job. And that dude was not taking it. And holy shit, if they had been in the same room, someone would have been dead at the end of that. So pointless though, isn't it? Yeah, totally pointless. It doesn't have to be that way. There's almost always a remedy to a conflict. You know, obviously it seems, it seems tone deaf to say at the moment with what's going on in the world. But in music terms, you just say, okay, well, you like a pair of coals. I don't like coals because they've got no top end. So I want a pair of four and fours. Well, I don't want to use four and fours. The remedy is fucking do both. And then I'll choose later. It doesn't need to ever become an argument. I mean, often I'll put stuff up if, you know, at my end of things, when I'm producing, it will be an in-house engineer. Almost always in-house engineers are great, brilliant humans because they're used to being around people and adapting and not getting in the way and not kind of letting their ego take over. And there'll be sometimes I get to a studio and there'll be an engineer has put some overheads up with a, you know, in a totally batshit kind of way that I would never use. Part of me is like, this is out of my control. I don't know what's going to happen. Let's go back to what I know. The other half of me is this could be fucking great and I'll do that in my next session so I embrace it and if it's great then you've just won you've just accumulated some knowledge you didn't have but arguing about mics is definitely there's more important shit in life I think <laughs> like it just really is there is so much more important shit the two of them are just assholes <laughs> when it comes down to it like it's so not a thing to fight about yeah egos testosterone fear Throw it all in the the uh, the pot together, you can, uh, and then just align two personalities that are not gonna back down. You can have war pretty quick between um, over really stupid shit. Yes, it's just yeah. My my, uh, my mother has always said the world spins round on the end of a prick, and I think that's kind of a perfect example of it. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. Also, like you said, there is an easy solution to that conversation. It doesn't have to be. A fight, and I think what you know the bigger, the bigger point here is that I think one of the places where music people tend to do the worst, where they could improve the most, which would I think that it would help the entire music industry, you know, and certainly help people's careers on individual levels, is learning how to communicate properly with people. Listening, listening, yeah, it's key. Actually, actually, if I was to give you a good example of, um, and I've told this anecdote a few times as, an, as a means to prove my point, you know, back in sixth, I used to feel like I was the riff writer and I, my riffs were this and I was this. And if I thought something, there's every chance it was right. So let's just go with my opinion. Yeah, guys, you know, you're 20 years old. You don't know what an annoying prick you're acting like. And when you're 20, well, when I was 20, I can't speak for other 20 year olds. I used to not realize the, the subtext that was beneath the tone of my voice. I thought, no, they can't see that i'll just say it in a really friendly way and everyone will just go along with it not realizing i just used to annoy the fuck out of people <laughs> same and i and i had to grow up to realize that oh fuck yeah passive aggression is a thing and i'm good at it and i need to learn not to be no you need to be bad at it and just be aggressive <laughs> yeah exactly own your shit either be 
it's better to say I've got a fucking temper and I'm going to unleash fury now than to sort of manipulate someone in a kind of patronising way. Yep, I actually agree with you. Uh, and I think people respect it more. Like, actually, they prefer to be on the receiving end of just your rage than you trying to sort of coerce them into your way of thinking because that's kind of an insult to their intelligence often and you're like, hang on a sec, I see what you're doing here. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, th- th- this this particular scenario was that there's a song called Skies of Millennium Nights on the first sixth album and it was a song that structurally I hadn't had as much to do with in the middle of the song. I forget why at the time. And when I came in to hear what the guys had done, I was like, absolutely not. This doesn't sound good enough. This structure sucks. I don't like this. No, no. And I remember, I can still remember myself now thinking, yeah, but I'm right. I know I'm right. So they'll come around eventually. But that was a real turning point for me when it comes to listening because they were like, look, we really think this is going to work. And I backed down and I resented them over it for a little while. And then when the album came out and when we started playing it live, it became apparent to me one day that that section of the song was by far my favourite bit on the album, by far my favourite bit to play live. I look forward to it every night. The crowd went crazy every night. And that was like a genuinely poignant turning point for me. I was like, okay, shit, you need to shut up a lot more because actually they're all right and you're not, and that's okay. Um, And it it had a very big impact on the the band's relationship with me because I was kind of Johnny Sensible, staying up later than everyone writing and like, applying pressure, never touching drugs, like, we must just write great riffs, we're here to succeed, you know. I think people must have been like, dude, chill Just do out. some drugs. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that was a moment where I was like, okay, I need to realise that, A, I'm definitely not always right, B, in fact, I'm regularly wrong, and I didn't realise, and that's okay too. Going back to the original point, listening was key. I should have just backed down and listened, and, you know, if three people in a room are saying something and they really believe it, there's a very, very good chance they're right. You know, that's kind of how it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or very good chance you didn't communicate your idea properly. Indeed. One or the other. And you know what? Those same three people will often acknowledge when something hasn't worked if they thought it was going to work. You know, sometimes the proof's in the pudding. You know, if, if a vocalist here on this record wanted to try something and I was like, Oof, that's not going to elevate the song. They want it to be really intimate. I'd sooner just do it and then see if they feel it. And actually, I might be pleasantly surprised and go, oh, shit, that sounds really good, actually. You know, we're having a discussion on this record, actually, because we've been referencing, as a lot of metal bands are at the moment, Spirit Box, because, you know, Mm -hmm. their most recent record is is monumental sounding. Absolutely, you know, really, really a bar, I would consider, in, in metal production. And, you know... You listen to the singer and she's sometimes singing so intimately over the most insanely heavy thing. And it rewrites the rules in the same way that Billie Eilish has with pop, where it's like, okay, I can whisper over a song and just compress the fuck out of it and put it up front. I guess Björk started that years ago. And, it, and it, so there's certain things on this record that we're making where the vocalist is wanting to do something a lot more intimately than I would consider to be intuitive or the right thing to do. And I've come around to it. I'm like, fuck yeah, that sounds amazing. Giving it a shot. Why not? And it's taught me something. And I was I was absolutely sure it was going to fail. And it definitely didn't. It sounds great. So, like, you're always learning, aren't you? And, um, you know, it's important to, you know, you just can't be right all the time. And, and honestly, in such a subjective world that is music, there isn't right. <laughs> so you sometimes have no. to lean on democracy and trust that if more people like it, that's a good reference point. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So we have time for a few more things. I'd love to ask you some questions from our listeners, if that's cool with you. Of course. All right. So question 
from Jack Norman. He says, I'd like to know if you were involved in the writing process for The Mind Sweep by Enter Shikari. It's one of my favorite albums that you've worked on and is the album that got me interested in recording and mixing. Oh, wow. Well, thanks for the question. No, I mean, with Shikari, I'm never really involved in the writing. It's very much more often than not Rao, the singer. Um, on that record, there was a few moments where um, the rest of the band got involved. But no, it's kind of Shikari. Making Shikari's music is kind of a, a bizarre process generally. And it's not really a co-writing situation. It's more just uh, all hands on deck creating chaos and putting all together. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I co-wrote, but it's more, um, it's very much gathering all the bits and bobs and making it all make sense and then capturing performances um, and embracing the boundless creativity that is Rao's brain. So it's more just like wrangling the ideas into one place. Yeah, yeah. Rao doesn't need any help on writing. Um, he's he's a total genius, one of the, one of the the greats in music that I've ever worked with. But he, sometimes it's just seeing things from the outside. He'll have such left field ideas, as will the drummer who comes in with some really amazing kind of creative stuff that turns things on its head. It's my job to kind of just make it all make sense, I guess, and make it make the listener enjoy it somehow um but yeah i would never ever get involved with rao's lyrics i I will often say to rao hey that bit there you should come up with something that's kind of in this tone that's a bit more spoken just to fill that gap because we don't really have a reference point there the music all gets a bit Mm -hmm. floaty what's the focus so i'll often push to to do things or i might suggest hitting higher notes for certain melodies but it would be completely um fraudulent to say i co-wrote um and yeah, hopefully that answers your question, Jay. Makes sense. Well, I think a producer's job description changes depending on the project they're working yeah, on. Yeah, man. I agree. So let's see here. Question from Joe Scaletta, which is, how did you make the transition from quote-unquote guy in cool band into quote-unquote trusted producer? Now, I know that we kind of talked about this some, but we never talked about the transition. So Fair enough. Well, coupled with... With our shared kind of ambition issues that we probably had where we saw saw the future and wanted it now, you know, I I always was looking, and the band won't want to hear this if they're listening, I was always looking beyond the band and I was always thinking, fuck, what can I do if this all goes wrong? Coupling that with an obsession for being in the studio, because it was pre-internet, it was pre-money getting less in the industry when it comes to investment, you know, we were... We were getting silly, silly advances for a proggy metal band. We're talking the early noughties here. So because of that, we were getting to go into really fancy studios and essentially learn the ropes in really good places in London. And then it just became an obsession. I got an M-Box. I think the label bought us a laptop to share and we started recording a lot of the backing vocals on the first sixth sixth record just in my parents' living room or whatever. I realised I had a passion for it. And then when Colin Richardson was mixing the record or most of the records i was the guy going to the studio and was there doing it with him and sort of traveling we were on tour at the time because it ran over so long i was traveling from gig to hotel to colin in the day then driving to sound check it was horrible but it was in that process that that i was just like oh my god i've got to do this shit and then colin I remember, he won't remember, and I'm sure he said it to loads of people, but he was my hero at school. I was obsessed with Burn My Eyes, Demanufacture, you know, all the sort of Roadrunner stuff. And he was like, you have a producer's ear, you need to do this. And that for me was like red rag to a bull. I was like, okay. Because it was like my 
my hero telling me what I needed to do in my future. And I never told him that because it'd just be weird, wouldn't it? But so that was it really then. And then from that point on, going again, um, referencing what, what you said earlier, who the fuck's going to want me to produce their shit? I'm just a guy in a band and I've never produced anything. So I saw that clearly then. It was, I was like 24 or something. And I thought I need to offer my services completely for free. I need to take a mobile rig and work in people's houses. So there's no cost outlay. PV were endorsing us with 5150s. They gave us a, a, a recording desk. We had some shitty mics that we gathered. Nice. Let's go to people's houses and let's trade off the back of the fact we're a band with a bit of a name and we know people will probably go, hey, yeah, I'll have you produce my stuff. Even if it's shit, we can just hang out and play riffs. I knew that would happen, so I took that chance. And, of course, in that year of just recording for free, I learned the ropes, and I there was no pressure on it. No bands were worried, because they were like, well, we're doing it for free, fuck it. If it's shit, it's shit, and we haven't hasn't cost anything. For me, I was like, I'm, I'm literally getting all these bands that I'm considering to be sort of recording guinea pigs. There's no risk for them. There's no risk for me. I'm just getting better. And then before I knew it, a couple of those bands started to get in Kerrang, and, and then you start getting emails and then you're like oh shit okay people want to work with me and in essence it hasn't stopped since then it's just kept rolling and rolling and that's literally that is the transition i i I had to deeply reference the memory banks there but that's essentially what happened that's a good story we had time for one more and i know what i want to ask you about but this is from thomas antonio reyes who says what's a unique approach to music creation and writing that has helped you throughout your career and i will add that in the pre-interview you talked about piggybacking and it sounds super fascinating. Ah. Piggybacking and riff writing. So I, I want to hear more about that. I think I have a flawless technique for being able to come up with shit, even if you're completely uninspired. It's not revolutionary, I'm sure, and I'm sure, uh, you know, music theory uh, students out there will be going, yeah, okay, bro, this is great. But for me, as a self-taught kind of blagger who listened to the Black Album growing up and just downpicked guitar forever, that's how I got into it. Piggybacking is this technique that I've created whereby, and all the bands I work with, they take the piss out of me and they always like, even one band had a t-shirt made up with song DNA written on it because that's a term I use all day. And it's something I actually learned from the drummer in Sixth, which is if we have one thing and one element, don't just scoot away from it and create another element. That next element needs to feel like it's organically grown from the first element. So let's see if we can steal a couple of notes from that first riff, stick it in the second riff. Before you know it, there's two riffs there that felt like they were born together. They weren't. Piggybacking is an extension of that for me. I try to, I'll start with one element. So whatever it is, fuck it. Just say it's a four chord pattern on a synth, right? Loop it. Piggyback it. Write something over the top of it, okay? Once you've created that thing over the top of it, if it's like a, say, a guitar top line or something, then mute your original elements of the synth. So now you're left with just the guitar, okay? Now you piggyback that guitar. Okay, I'm going to write a keys part over the guitar. Or maybe I'm going to go back to synth, write some different chords, because that guitar part in isolation is forcing me to hear different chords. Go back to the synth, write some new chords. And then mute the guitar, and so on and so on. And before you know it, Every element you've created, you've stacked up, all based upon the original element. And what you'll find is that they all work together perfectly. And then you extend upon that. So you're like, okay, fuck. So I've created four chord progressions here, all based upon this first thing. So that's our, say, verse and our chorus. And then there's like five guitar parts here. Okay, cool. Maybe that guitar part's the vocal melody. Why don't you sing that? And then I might mute everything else. 
sing play along to the vocal melody, come up with a new riff, and it's just this continual process of piggybacking, creating elements from one element. And and the reason it's so easy is that you're you're only ever having to think of one thing at a time. You're not like sat there going, shit, how do I come up with a song? I'm totally uninspired right now. You're just like, I can do one thing. That's easy. I can do that, you know? And and that's kind of why... And again, going back to the drummer in Sixth, he, he's taught me more than he ever knows, uh, he's ever known. He forced us with Sixth. Every riff we wrote was written in tempo order. And he knew, and those tempos were defined by how fast he could do single-stroke rolls on the toms, how fast he could do triplets with his feet. So we had definitive tempos, and we would just write riffs in those tempos and those tempos alone. And what we would do then is go, well, hang on, if these are all in the same tempo and they're all in the same key, let's now steal bits from that riff, put it in that riff, put that riff in that riff. And before we knew it, we had 10 mm-hmm. riffs all in the same key at the same tempo that all had bits of the same riffs. And it's exactly that same mentality. It's just song DNA. It's just like rinse it as much as you can. And um, it serves me well as a producer because I'm always like, fuck, what, is, what's the, what does this song need? Right, okay, that riff in the intro, let's get the guitarist to play that the octave up, exactly the same riff. Stick some quarter note delay on it. There's a twinkly lead for the chorus. No one knows it's the intro riff and octave up, but fuck it, you've done it. And it can serve you so well. It's like at your fingertips at all times. So um, like I say, I'm sure lots of people have done shit like that, but I reference that stuff first in my mind before when I'm making every decision. It's cool that you said it. That's one of my methods for escaping writer's block. So I can vouch that it works. What do you call yours if it's not piggybacking? Because I, I, I need to come up with a better name. Oh, I never called it anything. I just do it. It is how I write. Like, it's how I basically evolve songs. It's, I've always done it. It's like, have something, layer it. Then that layer becomes something else. Then that layer on top of that layer becomes something else. And before you know it, First of all, you have 800 layers, but you have a song. Um, but Dan, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to hang out. I think it's a good place to end the episode, but I uh, really appreciate that you were able to do this, and it's been a pleasure finally being able to talk to you and getting to meet you in this way. You too, my friend, yeah. Thank you for having me, and yeah, I look forward to talking again at some point. Anytime. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.